0: This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Learner Foundation and listeners like you.
1: This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is the sixth show in our series on the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The TRC focuses on what has happened to Wabanaki children and families since 1978, after the passage of the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA. It is specifically centered on the state of Maine's child welfare practices, where native children were removed from their homes and placed with white families. Today is the third part of my interview with Sandy Whitehawk, one of the five commissioners of the TRC. Sandy is Chichangu, Lakota, an enrolled member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe and a United States Navy veteran. She and her husband George live in St. Paul, Minnesota, where she runs the First Nations Repatriation Institute, an organization devoted to helping First Nations people impacted by foster care or adoption to return home, reconnect, and reclaim their identity. The Institute also serves as a resource to enhance the knowledge and skills of practitioners who serve First Nations people. Last week, Sandy talked about the nature of intergenerational trauma, The ways in which generations within a community can suffer the effects of the damage done to their ancestors. While the TRC is focusing on how native children were removed from their homes by state child welfare workers in the late 20th century, child removal in Indian communities goes back much further. For over a hundred years, Indian children were forcibly taken from their families to be sent to Indian schools, the most famous of which is the Carlisle School in Pennsylvania where they were stripped of their language, their culture, and their ties to their communities. Parents who resisted their children being taken could be sent to jail. And as Sandy argued in last week's interview, these institutions were less like schools than they were like prisons. They existed as recently as the 1970s. Today we're going to resume our conversation with some more discussion about what these schools were like. And we'll talk about the ways that the removal of children is part of a vicious cycle, that the main TRC
0: is working to transform. Here's
1: Sandy Whitehawk.
0: As schools went on, like in the 60s and 70s, some of them were not as brutal. However, you have to remember that what we know about human development and what a young child needs to uh, feel secure in the world, again, those things were not looked upon as making sure we, we have that happen for the child, and it was the huge neglect, the huge emotional, psychological neglect of the development of of that child. So, I'll give you an example. My husband went to um, boarding school, and he graduated from uh, Flandreau Indian School in 1970. Now, he says in his experience, he never witnessed anybody getting beaten. He never saw that. No one ever reported it. But what they did was they just ignored the children. They went to class. The classes were not academically challenging. They just, you know, uh, I think he said one class the guy came, brought a TV in and watched TV most of the time. They were not um, looked upon as as college material, so they weren't prepped for college even, which is exceptionally sad in my husband's case because he's very intelligent, and when I look at the missed opportunity that he had. I think of you know the thousands of people like him who had this missed opportunity to attend engineering school to go on to be a medical doctor to um, all the other uh, sciences that they were not um, uh, prepared to do because of the lack of of that academic standard within the school. So it just is an egregious form of neglect. Yes. That they would have these children housed here, but one of the things that one of the things that occurred that just broke my broke my heart the first time that my husband shared it is um, his um, mother passed, and uh, he was called out of his classroom through the intercom, and so they told him that he should go to his. Dorm room, so he did, and the one of the patrons of the school came in, opened the door, and said, "Your mother died. We'll get you a bus ticket." No, no school counselor to talk with him about the shock of hearing that his mother's passed. So he gets his bus um, ticket. He goes home to the funeral, and he comes back to school. No ongoing check-in to see how he is, and and just think of the devastation that was left there alone to experience that that sends the message to you that you are you are not important you know stuff these feelings and we know that when you stuff grief unresolved grief um... it's like a beach ball effect. It's it, you try to hold that beach ball down and it bounces. it never comes straight up it always comes out sideways and all over the place and so it's you know, leaves the individual to have all kinds of behavior that they engage in as a result of that shock of that trauma and that ongoing grief not being, um, not being attended to.
1: When you say all kinds of behaviors, what are you referring to?
0: Well, when you have extreme grief and unresolved grief, if you do something to re- um, ease that pain. So you would ease that pain through medication, you know, self-medication, drugs, alcohol. Some resolve it by self-mutilation. Some resolve it by um, taking out it, their behavior in aggressive acts, stealing, um, uh, all kinds of destructive behavior, beating each other up. Um, and then these things... Just all the things that are destructive to us. Uh, then these things are judged upon... well, these kids are incorrigible, we can't do anything with them, you know. then then they're a pipeline then to to the prison system.
1: So there's this sort of vicious cycle of tragedy, so children are raised with neglect and abuse, cope with it to try to comfort themselves in ultimately self-destructive ways, and then they get blamed for that.
0: Exactly. And so these are the families that are then targeted for removal of their children. Yeah,
1: so I want to come to that because, you know, what we know is that something like 19 to 20 times the rate of child removal happens on Indian reservations compared to non-Native communities in this country. At least that was happening prior to ICWA. And what was the actual official position on why that was happening? What were the reasons given for that?
0: Well, in many reservations during the 50s and 60s and even into the early 70s, many of them did not have, the homes did not have running water, electricity. There were no jobs, so there was, you know, a lot of poverty. You know, I really believe there was a lot of uh, bias toward us, seeing us as... um, unable to take care of our children because remember we went from the generation of extermination policies their desire was to rid us of this land period for instance the smallpox blankets that would be called germ warfare any other place so there was this intent to rid us you have to remember in the late 1890s when the boarding schools were set up the theme of that whole um, movement was to let everything Indian in you die is a quote from one of the um, people who were the head of that movement and of course General Pratt saying kill the uh, Indian save the man so they uh, went from wanting to physically rid us and then they wanted to emotionally and spiritually psychologically rid us of who we are as as a people and now those individuals are the ones who came out of boarding schools and gave birth to us and is it any wonder based on what i just shared about what how people survived that how would they have known um, certain protections that they should take in taking care of a toddler, taking care of an infant. Because they no- didn't witness that, how would they know? That's how we all learn about taking care of babies. We were a people who were raised in isolation and abuse for generations, and we still took care of our families. That says a lot about who we are and the strength that we have that and so when they looked at us when we were coming back from boarding school in those early years they didn't see that what they saw was we didn't set the table and eat at five o'clock that we ate whenever we were hungry maybe or we we um... we were overly permissive to our children because we believed that ch- some, of our ch- some of those lessons are taught by trial and error and so when Social workers were seeing the state of reservations and seeing large families living in a small um, house. That you know, they've looked at that and said, "Well, that's not healthy for the child." Um, you know, people are drinking in front of the child. The child's not even clothed properly. There's not even a window in this house. It's covered with a blanket. Um, on and on and on. And they saw that as not healthy for the child and they saw that many houses on the reservation were in the same place and they just literally came in and took went house to house and just and took children and the people at that time on the states of those reservations at that time they knew how easily you could be jailed how easily you could be taken away and who knows if you would even come back because remember they jailed parents for not Uh, sending their children to boarding school. So they would do the same thing if they drove into the reservation and took children. They didn't look at us as a people who had an incredible strength after having come from this horrendous experience. Yeah. And they didn't want to offer any resources. They didn't want to say, well, how can we help? How can we help? And never said that. Always, well, then we have to take the children. And it doesn't make any sense, but I can see why it happened because we just came from a generation just right before that where extermination was the policy and the mindset. We were savages. They had all these words and titles that they gave us. Um, I mean, we were so – they saw us as animals because, I mean, they even – there was a bounty on our scalp. So is it any wonder that just a few years later, 50 years – 60 years, a hundred years, it makes sense that they would end up doing that. But, um, it made you know, it was so incredibly harmful to us though. It was yet another, um, another round of, of oppressive, um, acts toward us as a people.
1: So you mentioned that, you know, they never came in and said, how can we help and I'm thinking, you know, I work as a psychiatrist, so I some, you know, I'm a mandated reporter, which means that by law I'm required to report to the state if I learn of a situation where I think that a child is endangered or in any way, you know, being abused. And um, I have to tell you, it's probably the most heart-sickening part of my job to work with a mother who's come for help. And be required by law to call the state and report on her. It's mm-hmm. something that um, you know. I, I I think every clinician I know feels uh, absolutely desperate about having to do that. Um, and yet, there's this terrible bind about really wanting to protect a child if you believe the child is being hurt. But you know, right now, this is this is in non-native communities. I'm talking to you about, you know, this. DHS comes in, they make an assessment, they often remove the child, they hold the child and, you know, foster families who are strangers. Are there, are there things that you have learned through how devastating this has been in native communities that, um, in some ways the rest of the country can learn from about what, are, what are alternatives to removing children from families that are really struggling
0: well, first and foremost, we don't have monies in the front end of, of services. We don't have resources that are uh, allocated to keeping a family together. My, my thought in watching this has been when we remove a child from a family that we believe, or that I should say not we, uh, the services believe is in danger, um, I believe you're teaching the family that they cannot Um, be a family through crisis and when you are able to keep the child in the home and get the family to agree to help you can keep the child in the home and in my opinion just based on what I've watched um, you know the the best thing that's been happening in social services seems to be signs of safety taken from the uh, the I people in um, Australia they're now using that because it has more family engagement in the beginning and it, it is more asset based and it does put the decisions um, you know back onto the family because you know when there's crisis going on uh, if a family's having difficulty for generations it takes them a while to realize oh I can take charge of my life <laughs> I can make decisions, but when you take the child away right away, you don't. You, you've added another trauma. You've added another shock, not only to the parents, but then to the child itself, who we will never. We who we don't know if it's they're going to a safer place. I've never heard a social worker say that, I've, and I know that that has to exist in their mind, and we, I can't say it enough times, that when you take a child from the family, there is no guarantee they are any safer. We know this because our foster youth have gone through this. Tell us this.
1: And I gather that was your experience, that your adoptive family, you experienced abuse in your family
0: as well. Exactly.
1: Yeah. You know, my understanding of the signs of safety um, approach in Australia is that, It isn't only that the the family is assessed through a kind of deficit pathology model, but actually there's actively looking for all the things that the family have done to try to protect the child, all the ways that they have sought help. They, They go in with a lens looking for the signs of strength, and they look to support those and build on those.
0: Exactly. and they th- So for instance, one of the things that social workers will look for when they're observing a mother and a father interacting with their child, they'll say they didn't um, hug the child. They didn't look the child in the eye. They there are just so many standards that they use to determine whether or not. they have a bond or they have this healthy relationship. That just makes me crazy because there's such a bias in that as well because not everyone is as demonstrative in their affection, but what matters is that the child knows they're loved, period.
1: Right. I mean, so if you take a child who has experienced, say, physical abuse in a home, nonetheless, this is their familiar whole world and they have a relationship with those people. So if you take them out... They that now have suffered a, a second
0: devastating loss. And, just, and you, you have to say the word. You've taken them from their mother. It doesn't matter whether their mother hit them or whatever happened to them. That is their mother. You don't remove them from people. You remove them from their parent. Yeah. And when it's easy to say it, when we say, take it away and stop using the word mother and father, and child, the safety of the child is. Um, there is still a bias that exists within social services that's deficit based, that's um, still a standard that's not ours as an Indian people. I think it's easy for and not to um, not to demonize social workers. Much of that is um, it's just a. I guess an occupational hazard to that that they're impacted after a while of seeing people in crisis their lens gets skewed as well and from what I've witnessed there's not in my opinion they haven't still developed the best um, self-care check-in and for themselves. They're just given cases and cases, and they have to do the best they can. And so nobody's getting the best they can in that situation. I want to ask you now about
1: what your experience has been as one of the commissioners here in Maine of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You have so much lived experience yourself. I know that you founded an organization, the First Nations Repatriation Institute, where you work with so many other adoptees. Have there been things in coming to Maine and listening to the statements that people here are giving um, that have been a surprise to you? Are there new things that you've been hearing that have uh, kind of changed the way you've understood this experience?
0: No, not particularly in terms of the individual statements. I think that one thing that for, I don't know why it it surprised me, but um, to find out that in the 70s that the tribe still had um, Indian agents.
1: I don't know what an Indian agent is, Sandy. What is that?
0: Well, an Indian agent is the person that was hired by the government to oversee uh, benefits that were allotted to the tribe. They... Have a history of being exceptionally corrupt. Monies that were to go for land purchases, um, things set up between the, in, even in the individual Indians, they made, um, that money didn't typically make it to the person it was supposed to, the tribe it was supposed to, to the individual. The agent usually pocketed that money and made that. They could also have the power to say, um, you know, A certain family wouldn't receive any benefits. They had the power to have people arrested and and put away. They had the power to put people in institutions for supposed mental illness. They were overseers of sorts. Do
1: you find that it is painful for you as someone who has suffered these traumas yourself? Is it painful for you to listen to stories that are so wrenching? Again and again, again, are there ways that you've had to kind of take care of yourself
0: in order to bear it? No, I, um, I, and I don't want to sound, um, I expect it. We're, we're, I remember there is an elder who said to me, um, we are a people who are well acquainted with grief. And what that has come to mean to me is, um, sadly we're not shocked yeah you uh, you're shocked because you've never experienced anything like that your people have never had to worry about another group of people overseeing you that's a concept that you'll never have this this is who we are this is our experience so we're not shocked we're, of course, we're humanly saddened when we hear what our sisters and brothers have experienced. You know, it's not like it's, it's not like it's, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I had that too big deal. It's not that. Because we can empathize because we know what that feels like. So we might not say much, but a lot can be, a lot can be conveyed in that respectful acknowledging silence.
1: What is your hope about what the outcome for the TRC will be in terms of the non-native response?
0: What would be really wonderful is if the very initiatives that we may suggest that would address the um, education of the, of the main people, the um, Interventions that we identify the, uh, would be exceptionally wonderful if they would just say, Yes, we will allocate money to improve this, whatever that will be. There will be several things that we'll be suggesting based on what we heard. And the respectful thing and the honorable thing to do in any relationship because we're talking about a relationship of with the state of Maine and the tribes of Maine and in any relationship even if it's nation to nation when someone says this is what we need to improve the quality of the life of our people and you are engaged in that process as the state is is now an integral part of that because of social services and other services that may come how if they could just acknowledge that the main tribes know exactly what they need they know what they need to make things better for their children and for those yet to come trust that we know that that they know that and respond in a honorable way and let, uh, let me remind you that there are 500 and some, I can't remember the exact amount, but throughout the country there are 500 and some treaties signed by the United States and various Indian tribes. Not one tra- treaty has been upheld. Not one. Now, this TRC is a mandate between the state of Maine signed by the governor witnessed became a public event and it isn't a treaty but it's an intent to improve to hear and to address those wrongs those wounds uh, to to address that so that is my hope is that the state of Maine will uphold their commitment that they they pledged in that when they signed that document and when they met with the main tribes.
1: Sandy Whitehawk, thank you so much for being my guest. Um, If this radio show can contribute to that, it will be um, my great wish.
0: Wouldn't that be awesome?
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for your time and for um, your generosity in sharing these really painful stories. Um, I want to close by uh, directing people to your website. Um, I wondered if you could give us that address again, please.
0: Yes. First Nations Repatriation Institute's website is wearecominghome.com.
1: Great. Thank you. This was so powerful what you said. Well, thank you. I felt very, very moved. At one point I was like, uh, just trying not to cry and feeling like that would probably not be good their interviewer is crying on the radio but it's just felt very moved by what you said.
0: You know, I think I think it's a shame that and this is something that I also see in white society is the push down of emotion like that. That is the appropriate response and there is nothing unprofessional, there's nothing yet that is a true reflection of what you experienced in our conversation. And that's another thing that's different between white culture and Indian culture. Is that we don't say we're sorry when we cry? I don't think I've ever heard an Indian person say that to me when we're in conversation and they cry. I used to say it all the time because I was taught that in white community. I, I taught that all the time. Plus, um, so that when I got, I re, I'll just never forget the first time I cried in front with some Indian people, and I'm um, being told we don't ever, we don't have to say this this is an emotion that's deserved. So we need to pre- reflect what we really want. We want if we want authentic communication, we have to um, we have to be authentic and not apologize for those. I don't know where and how that started in in your culture, but it's something that needs to be changed. I, I
1: so appreciate you saying that. I think for me it's also a tension between the two professional cultures I'm part of because as a psychiatrist, I feel like, my work every day is to help people cry because I believe that crying is how we heal. But I think maybe as a radio person, I felt like somehow it would be unprofessional for the host to cry. But I think that I need to bring some of that sort of culture that I bring from as a therapist into the radio maybe more. So you've, well, it, you've given me permission to do that. Thank well, you.
0: yeah. It gives a good, you're being a good example by doing that. You know, Having been someone who's been in a lot of therapy... It pisses me off when a therapist stays stone-faced. I usually can't work with someone like that. And um, so just so you know. I
1: cry every day pretty much. Yeah. Good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. This concludes our winter series on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. In the spring, as the release of the commission's report comes due... We'll check in again with both state child welfare workers and members of the Wabanaki tribes to see how the process is continuing to unfold. If you like this show and want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com and listen to all of our past shows, including the past five weeks in this series. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely.